0: To alternate as best we can between Old Testament and New Testament, we do. We try to alternate between different genres of literature um, in the in Scripture because we want to to see the significance and the impact that it has. We, because we believe that it's living and it's active. Um, we also do this because it, um, as we work through um, chapter by chapter, when your when your particular pet sin comes up, you don't feel like someone tipped me off, right? <laughs> right. It's just it was. It's just the next thing up. Um, when, it, when an issue that you're struggling with or dealing with happens, then it wasn't like, hey, how did they know? It's, it was just the next passage up. Um, we also do it because ultimately we believe that what changes us and transforms us are, are dozens and hundreds of sermons. It's not typically the one, right? Some of you may have a testimony where it was like, there was this one sermon on this one day, and I can tell you everything about it. But for most of us, it's just been the, this accumulation of just faithful preaching and going to the word week after week, month after month, year after year that, is, that has shaped you, has matured you, has discipled you. Um, and so we want to, to do that. It allows us not to feel like we have to say everything in every sermon, that, that are, we can kind of just build on it week in and week out. So we'll be starting 1 John, and there's a few things we need to know um, as we get into it, first is is who wrote it. So first John, along with second and third John, these three short kind of letters here, and the book of Hebrews are the only New Testament letters that don't have like the, an author signing and saying, "Hey, here's who wrote it." So it's a little bit unique in that regard. Now you notice it says first John, so there is an assumption that the Apostle John wrote it. And the reason that the church has has said this is because it fits, um, if you read through 1 John and then you go back to the Gospel of John, you're going to think, wow, there's a lot of stylistic similarities, right? In the language that's used, in the themes that are used, um, in in the subject matters, in the way he talks about salvation, there is so much commonality, right? I just want to read a couple, there's dozens of these, but if you read, First uh, John, like 3, 8, we hear this. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. And if we turn over to John chapter 8, verse 44, um, you are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning. He does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. If we read in John, um, not First John, in John 9, 41, we, we see this. Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say we see, your guilt remains. And if we turn back to 1 John 1, 8. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. And and so if we just look, we could go through and spend the rest of the morning just looking at these like passages back and forth of just the similarity in the, in the line of thinking, in the vocabulary used, and in the themes. John, the apostle, really likes to create um, contrast. So he likes to talk about light and darkness. He likes to talk about truth and falsehood. Right? He likes to create two groups and say, you gotta be in one. There's no third place to be. So he's like, you either have eternal life or you don't. You either know God or you don't, that there's no gray area in this for John. That he talks about love and hate. And so we we just see some similarities in this. Another reason that we believe John is the author is that in verses one and two of 1 John, we find out. That the, the author was an eyewitness. So he says, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our own eyes, which we have looked upon, we have touched with our hands, right? That we understand that he's saying, like, I was, I was present. I mean, if you remember in the Gospel of John, John likes to refer to himself, like, as the beloved disciple or the one whom Jesus loved, right? Like, he doesn't call, he doesn't say, hey, I, John ran faster than Peter, right? He says, you know, the beloved disciple was quicker than Peter, you know? Like, that I beat him there. Like, that's, that's kind of the way he talks. And so what we see here is that we know that the author of, of John, of 1 John, is an eyewitness. We'll also see, as we look through this, this book over the next several weeks, is that he writes with authority. He doesn't suggest things. He says things, Right? He writes with a, an apostle's authority that he can make strong and bold claims. And we're going to look here in a second as to why he might not have um, signed it. We'll talk more about that. But, but so we see that it's got similarities to John. We see that, um, it, that he was an eyewitness, that he writes with authority. And then history simply tells us um, through the church fathers Beginning in about the year 155, Polycarp of Smyrna writes and he quotes from 1 John 4, as he's writing a letter to the church in Philippi. Right? We see Eusebius um, about fifty years later, as he's writing, he refers to John's greater letter, and he's talking about second and third John. He says, but he had the greater letter meaning first John. And we see that the early church just they knew John had written it, and so they, they write that and there's there's tons of historical evidence that this letter has been attributed to John. Alright, so who's it written to? It's written to believers. So if we look in chapter 2, verse 20 and 21, so he says, But you, his audience, have been anointed by the Holy One, and you have all knowledge. I write to you not because you don't know the truth, but because you do know it. Because No lie is of the truth. And so what we see is he's writing to believers. He's writing to the church, and he's saying, look, you have the truth. You already have it, but I need to remind you of some things. We need to to talk about some things. And so he is writing to encourage and to edify believers, to recall what they've already been taught, what they already know. Where are these believers? We know that John was an elder at Ephesus, and so, most likely, this was a letter that was being sent out to a group of churches um, in, in Asia, in the, in the area around Ephesus. So, if you're not sure where that is, if you, think, if you hear Asia and you think China, what it's modern-day Turkey, right? And so, Turkey is kind of the place that, that where Europe and Asia meet, if you're, if you're good with a map. If you're not, it's where Asia and Europe meet, okay? So... <laughs> It's Turkey, all right? So when he says Asia, it, it's not Far East um, as much as, as the Near East. Um, what is it? It's actually, it's really not a letter in the traditional sense because it doesn't say, you know, to these people by John. It's a circular letter. And what it means is that it's being sent to a group of churches that are all facing a similar struggle. And what's going on is that there is... Um, some itinerant preachers who've been going around to the churches around Ephesus. And what they've been doing is they've been teaching some things contrary to the gospel. And so now John has written a letter that's meant to be sent to all of these churches to be read to combat what's going on, that he's gonna combat the theological issues and the ethical issues of these false teachers. And so what would happen is they would get the letter from John and whoever was reading it would would then direct and say, to the Church of Redeemer that is found in Pampa, right? And then it would be passed on. And so the person who's reading it in that place, and it would be from John to these people, but it was meant to be passed around. But it's an interesting letter because it's really, it's a letter full of rhetoric. And, and the type of rhetoric that John is going to use, um, is it means to deepen already held beliefs, And so you're going to see a lot of similar, it's it's almost like it goes in a circle where he's going to continue to bring up some similar ideas with a little bit of nuance and a little bit of, like, depth to it. He's going to use a lot of repetition. He's going to use a lot um, of strong language. He's going to go pretty hard at his enemies. And all of it is, is meant to bring about peace and assurance to those who right now are feeling like they're being attacked. And so ultimately, the purpose um, of his letter is to combat false teachers. And we'll talk about that just a little more here in a second. When was it written? Most likely it was written between 90 and 100 AD. It, it could have been as early as 70, um, but most likely it was written in the last decade of the first century. So, why, did, why is John writing it? False teachers have emerged. And, and, and what has occurred is that there are a group who are denying the humanity of Jesus. They're saying, yeah, 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 okay, if, if it was God, he wasn't, he wasn't human. And then there's a second group that's popped up who are saying, and they're denying the divinity. And they're saying, man, Jesus was a good dude. Wise, better than us, faithful, but he was just a man. Just a man. And so these, these teachings... Are really going to be the birthplace um, of something called Gnosticism, which is the idea that we're saved really by our knowledge. Um, that's going to tend to look at Jesus as not being fully God and fully man. Um, they're going to say, you know, there wasn't a virgin birth, he was just a better kind of class of man. Um, that he was um, often what would be taught was that Christ, so Jesus was a guy, and after his baptism, Christ descended upon him and then that's why he was able to do miracles and then right before he went to the cross then Christ ascended back to heaven and so then it was just Jesus dying just a man dying and so what's going in is they're, they're taking these things that are talking about Jesus right but they're taking it and they're, they're taking these things that are not true these falsehoods and trying to say well, we, we love Jesus too right and they're, they're trying to weasel their way in if you remember in Acts chapter 20, right, that is, as Paul left the church in Ephesus, he warned them specifically. He said, look, you're going to have to be on guard as he's talking to the elders. There are going to be wolves who are going to come from within who are going to look to devour. And what we see is that has come to be. That there are those who have come from within. And first John, um, John will talk about those who are from within, <laughs> And they've, now they've walked away. They're false. They are not with us, and yet they're looking to destroy the church. And so what has happened is a lot of the believers in the church are rattled because it's folks that they knew, that they loved, who have now walked off and they're teaching these abhorrent things about Jesus. They're discrediting Jesus. And so John's letter here is super tender, super pastoral, right, where he is just going, man, know you, and I want to give you deep reassurance. And I want to give you some criteria as to how to evaluate the claims of what these men are making, so that we can go back and look at the truth of who Jesus is. If we look in 1 John 5, verse 13, by this we know that we abide in him and he in us, because he has given us, I'm sorry, I'm reading out of chapter 4, um, (laughs) I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, right? So he's like, I'm writing to you believers that you may know that you have eternal life. And this is the confidence that we have towards him. Like he is writing a letter to those who are, they're staggered a little bit. And they're, they're, they're questioning some things a little bit. And he's like, hey, dearly beloved, I want you to know what you've heard about Jesus is, is true and it's real. And that these who are teaching this, they're not of us. And I want you to have deep assurance of who he is and what he's promised. There's just this deep care and concern, this desire to protect them. And so he will address his enemies, but almost secondarily. He's really writing, saying, okay, y'all know what's going on, so I'll address it as kind of an aside, but I really, I just want to minister to y'all. And we just see this, like, pastoral kindness, But he will dispute both their theological and ethical concerns um, because these false teachers are tending to be loveless and arrogant. They think themselves better than the ordinary believer and, and their sin is typically very fleshly. So why then for us, why are we going to 1 John? What I, what I love about John is that when he wrote his gospel, and then as we look at these letters, that his main desire, like he just holds Jesus up. And he says, take another look. He's good. He's better than you think he is. He's more than you think he is. And so why First John for us? One is we live in a culture that's attacking the truth of what we believe, right? And some of us may be staggered a little bit. We may need some reassurances that, that, that those who are coming against us and claiming to have some, some knowledge greater than ours that would attack Jesus and say, well, man, he was okay. He was, I he was a good man. He was like a great teacher, but he wasn't God, right? That we would see how John is going to answer those questions, But that that we would also, because he's writing to the church, as we start a new year, as we come into this, that we would ask ourselves, how am I currently viewing Jesus? Right, Like we know the right answers to say when someone poses them. But right now, if, if asked, if really pressed on, where would your heart be, where would your mind be in regards to how closely are you walking with him? What does fellowship with him look like right now? Because John just wants to say, if, 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 see if I can get that word out. If you are walking as closely as you have ever walked with Jesus currently right now, John's going to say this to you, he's better than that. He's even more than that. Keep looking. It's like a diamond turning and we see another facet of him. That if you're currently right now just a little bit numb or dry or weary, he's going to say, no, 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 look at him again. Gaze a little closer. You're gonna be you're gonna find refreshment. You're gonna find hope and you're gonna find peace. And if you don't know him at all, then look at Jesus. The author and the finisher. The author and the finisher of our, our faith, our rescuer, our savior, the one who has eternal life. We live in an area that likes to kind of blend, right? Like so we're John is going to say, "There's two groups: you either know Jesus or you don't." We live in an area that kind of likes to say, "Well, there's folks that know Jesus, and so they act like they know Jesus, and then there's everybody else, and they know Jesus, they just don't know that they know Jesus, right?" Because we're just we're all Christians here. And John's going to say, "No, no, 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 it's not how it works. You have him or you don't." And he draws little clear lines. So it's it's a good reminder for us not to assume the gospel. Not to assume that we we have it or that we know it or that those around us do. And then finally, why are we doing 1 John? It's intensely practical. Talked about interactions between how we deal with false teachers and then interactions even with how we love one another within the body, within the church. So let's turn to 1 John 1. And we're going to look at just kind of the preface, the beginning, the first four verses this morning. And then next week we will really dive into First John. Verse 1. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life. Which was with the Father, which was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. So, as He begins His letter, Right? He just he reminds us of a few things. In the in the very beginning, he says, that which was from the beginning. He's gonna say, like John loves kind of flowery language here. He starts John 1 saying the same thing, right? That in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Right? That he's taking us back to the fact that, that this Jesus, who there are men in the church attacking, he's saying, No, no, no. He was in the beginning. Like He's eternal. He has always existed. He's just reminding them of of the birth of this. And he says, so we have heard it. He starts to talk about senses. Like we've heard him. And we have seen with our eyes. And we have looked upon. And we have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. And he's just using here this phrase, the word of life, to mean Jesus. Like that in the beginning was Jesus and then Jesus steps into history, and we have seen him, and we have studied and gazed upon him, and we have heard him, and we have touched him. Like, we, we know what it is that we're talking about, that this life was made manifest. It was shown, and we have seen it. We testify to it, and we proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father, was made manifest to us that he's he's just reminding them that it's not just some philosophy some theory some man-made thing he's like we touched it we heard it we saw it jesus is eternal he is both god and man and so what john is beginning his whole thing with is the incarnation the fact that jesus was god and he put on flesh that he came to walk among us to dwell among us that jesus was a real historical figure He's also God. And I think for many of us, we take this idea for granted, right, that it doesn't feel like that big of a deal that God would put on flesh. And if that's the case, if we don't, if it doesn't feel like that big of a deal, we think too highly of ourselves, right? Like, we, we think too highly, like, this week, if you've avoided all the big sins, like, you haven't done anything that someone would be able to come up here and say, here's how they sinned. Think about your heart. Think about your mind and how sinful you are, right? How affected you are, that even in your best days, in your best motives, that things are always wanting to twist away, right? Like that we just have this bent to kind of twist away from the Lord, to twist to self-pleasure, to self-focus, to self-worship, and that we have to work really hard through the sanctification of the Spirit to really to make much of Jesus, because what we really want to do is to make much of us. And if I can get that while making much of Jesus, that ain't too bad, right? Like, that's how broken that we are. That we, we're looking to always, yeah, Jesus is good. Do y'all notice how much I love Jesus? Right? Like, there's just this thing in us that draws us. And so if we don't, if we're not honest about our own sin and our own bent towards it, then the incarnation feels kind of small, like okay, Jesus put on flesh, not a big deal. Except the God of the universe, creator, sustainer, in whom all things hold together, put on flesh. And left eternity to step into time, into history, to be dependent upon parents, to be raised, to work a blue collar job, to be mostly not known and ignored for 30 years, to have a three-plus-year ministry, and then to be brutally murdered and mocked and humiliated and lied about, that that we we forget these things. J.I. Packer writes this about the incarnation, that in Christ were two natures united in him without mixture without confusion, without separation, without division, and that each nature, divinity and humanity, retained its own attributes. So he says, all the qualities and powers that are in us, as well as all the qualities and powers that are in God, were, are, and ever will be really and distinguishedly present in the one person, the man from Galilee, Jesus. Like that's, it's, it's almost too big for our minds to comprehend that he was fully God, that he was fully man, he was both. And what John is doing is he's just declaring this. He's saying, look, if we're going to start, like he, he doesn't correct the false teachers immediately. He doesn't say, hey, here's what you need to go do. Here's how you're going to shut them up. He just reminds them of the truth of who we are in Christ, that Jesus is everything, and that he was divine, and that he was human, and that we have seen it and heard it, that we have touched it, that we've known him. In Colossians 2, we see this. Verse 9. For in him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Right, that Paul just says, like, he had it all. And that he came to rescue us. And why does this matter? Because so many people will, I mean, there's really nobody who says Jesus wasn't a historical figure. The issue simply is is he God? And that if he's just a model to inspire us, if he's just a better human, or just a better example for us, someone that we could aspire to be like, there is no salvation. There is no redemption, because he cannot satisfy and atone for our sin before a holy and perfect father. And so this matters deeply, and it's why John would start here, was like, I've touched him, I've seen him, I've heard him, I've looked at him, I've walked with him. He is who he says he is. He is God, and he is man. So why does it matter? Look at verse 2. The life, meaning Jesus, was made manifest. It was shown, and we have seen it, we testify to it, and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. We care about this because in Christ is eternal life. John will tell us over and over again through his gospel that Jesus, like he is eternal life. He equals eternal life. Because he came from the Father to rescue us, to take us back to the Father, that he is eternal life. Look at just a couple of examples of this. John 5:26. "For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself." All right? We look at John 11 23. Sorry, 25. Jesus said to, to her, meaning Martha. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall live. We turn over to John fourteen six, a very familiar verse. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. We could, again, we could look at several more. We're going to look at one last one. Uh, 17, 2. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus, whom you have sent. Right, like, so John is starting his thing with a declaration. It's not a suggestion. It's, here's what truth is. That in Jesus, we have eternal life. And that he is man, and that he is God. That he will take us back to the Father right, that he is writing not to, remember, not to lost folks. He's writing to the church and reminding them, retelling them of this big truth. Why? Why the reminder of eternal life to those who would already have it? Because listen, verse 3, that which we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. The point is, is that we would be walking in communion, that we would be walking in fellowship, that we would have this committed partnership with God, where we are abiding in him, where we are continually loyal and devoted and obedient. And for far too many, especially in our neck of the woods, eternal life seems to be in, I know about Jesus, but that there's no fellowship with Jesus, So, a couple weeks ago, I got a letter, and it was addressed on the outside to Dad, but it came in the mail, and it said, Dad, in apostrophes, Jeremy Buck. So, Carson gets the mail, and so she comes walking in the room, like, she's just a server like a family secret or something, right? (laughs) Like, and she's just like, uh, Dad? Right? (laughs) who's writing you a letter? I mean, like, she's super concerned. And so I, I open it up. And in, in the past, when I was doing student ministry, there was a group of girls um, who were in junior high that called me dad instead of Jeremy. I, I don't really know why, but they did. And so one of them has ended up in prison. And so she was writing this letter, you know, and she like, you know, hey, dad, and so I, I show it to Carson. We talk, like, I'm, I'm not her father, you know? Like, um, but, but as, you're, as we're reading through this letter, and she's calling me, calling me dad, right, I started to think about, for so many folks, that's what their relationship with God looks like. They call someone father, they call someone dad who is not their dad, who they have no relationship with, who they haven't seen in years, they know some things about. Maybe they've they've been around them, right? Like they've been in the vicinity of them. And maybe they even admire some things about them. And we're like, God, that's my dad. And yet God's saying, yeah, what it looks like to have eternal life is that we have each other, that we have communion, that we have fellowship, that you're walking with me, that you're obedient to me, that you're devoted to me, that we know one another, and so when Carson calls me dad, there's no doubting it, right? There's no doubting it because she's with me. She walks with me. She's beginning to, to act some like me and some like her mom, and she, she looks like, like, she's been marked by us as ours. And it's a mutual thing. Church, as we walk through 1 John, would we not be those who would say, hey, dad, and God keeps on walking because he's like, I don't know you. That we would be those who are walking in close fellowship, relationship, and communion with him. Paul says, or sorry, John says, I do this in verse four, so that my joy would be complete in you. He's saying, I want, like as a parent, like excited and thrilled to see their kid Excelling or succeeding or walking in truth and being grateful for it, he's saying, Let me see you not follow the false teachers. Let me see you walk in fellowship with God and know that I will be overjoyed to see that. So, the question for us this morning is this Are we walking in communion with Jesus? And in our initial first response was probably going to be Yes. We got to pause for a second. Are we? Like, are we pursuing the scriptures because in it we find Christ? Or are we doing it because that's just what we do? When we go to prayer, is it because like like we're desperate and we think maybe it's like you know, rubbing the genie bottle, or do we go because in it we get to visit with Abba Father? Right? Paul says in Romans 8, like he's given us the spirit of adoption. He's called us sons and daughters. He's brought us into the family. He is not distant, he is near. Because he's Emmanuel, God with us, who has dwelt in the flesh to rescue us and to take us back to the Father. So would we not assume communion, but would we long for fellowship and communion? And so John's gonna spend the rest of this letter walking through what that looks like and how we know. He's gonna begin to give us criteria to go, okay, am I or am I not? Right, that's gonna be the whole point, is to help us have that assurance to walk with him in that way, right? So that's where we'll, it's like we're kind of ended on a cliffhanger, right? That's where we're headed. So this morning, the band's gonna come back up here in just a moment. Um, I wanna invite us just to take a second after I pray to just sit and to ask the Spirit to guide us in that and say, am I walking in communion with you? Am I walking in fellowship with you? really? And to let the Spirit minister or to convict or to direct us there. After a a couple minutes of just kind of praying and asking for that, um, the band will come up and we will respond. We will worship our King this morning who has come for us, who has rescued us. At any point during that song set, there'll be three songs. If you as an individual or you as with friends or you as a family would like to get up and take the Lord's Supper, which is for those who are walking in, in obedience to Jesus, The the juice and the bread are in the back and you're welcome at any point during those songs to to get up and and to take that. Because this morning we celebrate and we have hope and we have peace because Jesus came for us and lived the life we were supposed to live and died the death we were supposed to die in our place to satisfy the wrath of God. And then he beats sin and Satan and death and lives today to hear our prayers. And so when we say, God, am I walking in in communion with you? He can say yes or no because he hears it and he's alive. And we have hope because of the cross. And so I'm going to pray for us. Would you, would you ask the Lord to guide? And then as we worship here in a moment, you can feel free to, to stand, to, 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 to sit, or to take the Lord's Supper. Let the Lord guide you in that. Let's pray.